want us to begin to look tonight at the end of this chapter. You may recall that some weeks ago on a prayer service uh, Sunday evening, we looked at this prayer of Daniel chapter 9. I think it was two times ago, not this most recent prayer service, but the one before that. Uh, we looked at the prayer of Daniel uh, from this chapter. And what I would like to do now before we begin tonight is to read uh, a, a portion of the beginning of the chapter, and then we'll skip down to the end. But where we're headed tonight is to get to uh, the final verses, verses 24 through 27, which is the uh, controversial of all controversial prophetic passages uh, in the Scripture. So before we do that, I would like to make a, a few observations about Daniel's prayer. And let me begin by reading. I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read down to verse 5, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 19 to the end of the chapter. Verse 1, In the first year of Darius, the son of Hasuras, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. And just keep in mind that term, 70 years. Uh, we will see it quite a few times tonight. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Now let's skip down to verse 19. As Daniel ends his prayer, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh Daniel, I have now come to you to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore consider the word and understand the vision. And now here's the vision in these last verses. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. 
And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many. For one week and for half a week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, I want to draw your attention to a few statements that we see in verses 20 through 23. God immediately responds to Daniel's prayer. We see in verse 20 the words, while I was speaking in prayer. And again in verse 21, while I was speaking in prayer. So uh, I would suggest to you that this is a reminder to us that God is always hearing and responding immediately to our prayers. Now, his response may be to continue us on a path of prolonged waiting uh, to have our prayers answered. So we don't always have an immediate answer uh, from God that uh, uh, answers what we would like to see God do or is an immediate fulfillment of the prayer from our perspective. But I would suggest to you that God is always hearing and responding immediately to our prayers. But his response can be sudden and dramatic as it is in this case. Daniel is praying and God immediately does something incredibly dramatic. He sends an angel, the angel Gabriel, to speak to him, to explain to him things that are pertinent to the prayer that he's just finished praying. Note a couple of other things with me about verses 21 through 23. In verse 21, it says, Gabriel came to me in swift flight. Now, we're going to talk about angels when we get to chapter 10, maybe as early as our next session. And I have intentionally avoided saying anything other than just uh, very uh, surface comments about angels because we're going to deal with angels uh, in some depth and when we come to angel, when we come to chapter 10, including uh, some references in chapter 7, 8, and 9. So I would defer comments about Gabriel and angels uh, until that time. But I want to draw your attention to this. I think that the New American Standard and some other versions better translate this phrase as he came to me in my extreme wilderness. So instead of he came to me in swift flight, he came to me in my extreme weariness. I say that because the Hebrew words don't have anything to do with flying, but rather with weariness and exhaustion. And I think the idea why it's sometimes translated swift flight is, is as if Gabriel was the one who is weary because he has, he has rushed to Daniel's side. And I think that's misunderstanding uh, what this verse is saying. The two words are a verb that means to be weary or to faint. And then the, uh, the noun that means uh, to, is the word weariness itself. And so the idea is that the angel comes to aid Daniel in Daniel's great weariness. It is not the angel that is tired. We don't have any reason to think that angels would ever be uh, weary anyway. Uh, I suspect that the mighty angels from heaven uh, don't struggle with uh, weariness and that it is in fact Daniel, uh, Daniel who is the weary one. Now, I mentioned this just to draw your attention to two implications. 
that I think we should draw from this passage in Daniel. One is that Daniel was engaged in serious prayer. This was a matter of great concern to his soul, what was going to happen to Israel, his people, and the city of Jerusalem, and the temple. He is praying, as we're going to see in a moment, in light of Jeremiah the prophet and what he's been reading in the scriptures. And so Daniel has been fasting. Daniel has been, has been wearing sackcloth and ashes. Daniel has been engaging his whole self deeply in this process of prayer. He was engaged in serious prayer that has, that has caused him to be at the point of weariness and fainting. Then the second implication is this, that God sends ministering spirits to us in our time of need. Now, we're going to talk about this when we get to chapter 10, but we see a number of times in the scriptures where angels visibly and in an outward way are, are made manifest to people and help people in an overt, outward way. I would suggest that God sends angels to us Every day that we are constantly being helped, aided uh, by uh, ministering spirits. We don't see them. Uh, we don't uh, interact with them uh, openly uh, in our physical world. But I suggest to you that we have ministering spirits that are with us in our time of need all the time, ministering, ministering to us in ways that we will never imagine. I think we'll be amazed when we get to heaven. We find out all that goes on uh, in the invisible world in which we move and uh, live. Also in verse 21, I want to draw your attention to another statement. It says, this little detail, that he was praying, he's finishing his prayer at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, if you think about Daniel here, coming near the end of his life, what is his relationship to the daily evening sacrifice? Does he have anything to do with that? Is he in any way engaged in that? It has been 70 years since Daniel has been in a time and place where he could in any way interact with the daily sacrifices that were going on there uh, in the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, the temple has been destroyed now for many decades. And so no one is able to interact with the evening sacrifices. And the point I want to make is this. Though Daniel cannot, because of frowning providence, keep the prescribed offerings in his heart, and by faith he remembers and he observes the ordinance of God. Now we've seen in the book of Daniel, Pastor Justin preached on this, in the earlier books, we know that Daniel was so methodical and regular and principled in his prayer life that his enemies were able to seize on that as a way to entrap him and try to destroy him. And so we've seen this man for all of these years, I would suggest, uh, every day at the appropriate time when he would have been involved had he been in the right circumstances in the evening sacrifices, that Daniel is, in fact, praying uh, in this consistent way. Daniel could not keep the practice, but at the appropriate time, he could be found engaged with God in prayer. One other statement from these verses I want to draw your attention to is in verse 23, 
where it says, you are greatly loved. The New American Standard says, highly esteemed. Uh, this word, greatly loved, means to delight in, to take pleasure in, to desire. In Genesis 2.9, we have the statement, the tree was pleasing to the sight. And that's our word that is applied here to Daniel. Pleasing. Exodus 20.17, you shall not covet, and that's this word, desire. Uh, see something uh, that shouldn't be yours as pleasing and to be desired. And so that's the idea behind this word, you are greatly loved. I don't think that in this exact language, uh, that, this, that this exact language is applied to anyone else in the scriptures. I don't think we see this term applied directly to any other individually, directly, or personally. Now, we might react to say that I am no Daniel, and it may very well be right for us to have that attitude and to have that perspective. Humanly speaking, he was an extraordinary man of faith, and the marks of grace are strong on this man, Daniel. But I want to remind you that it is not impossible for one of us uh, in this room to really be a man or woman with the spiritual statue of a Daniel. There are no bounds to what the grace of God can do in any one of us. And so it would be wrong for us to think that, well, you know, Daniel is this superhero type Christian and we could never be like that. Uh, if we were to apply ourselves and through the grace of God, if he would work in us, we could be a man just like Daniel. But really, it is not right thinking when we think about being heard by God and being greatly loved by God on the basis of being a great person of faith. Uh, that is simply wrong. There is no merit system at work in the world of prayer. There is no merit system at work in God's loving heart. If you are a Christian, God loves you through and through. And when you, and when you or I cry out to God in prayer, He hears us for Christ's sake. We are accepted in the Beloved One. We approach God clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And He answers because we are highly esteemed and greatly loved in Him. That is, in our Savior Jesus Christ. And so when Daniel's prayer is answered because he is greatly loved of God, we shouldn't think this is something that is different from what we can expect in our interaction with God because we are greatly loved by Him for Christ's sake. And then one last thing in verse 23, it says, Consider the word and understand the vision. This vision uh, from Gabriel will have good news and it will have bad news, which is going to be communicated to Daniel. The good news is, in the following verses, that God will accomplish salvation through Messiah. The bad news is this. After the restoration of Israel to the land, there is going to be yet another desolation for the city and the people that Daniel loves. And so in, in the future, uh, according to this prophecy, there's again going to be desolation for Jerusalem and for 
the temple of God. Now let's look at the verses again, verses 24 through 27. Let me make a few comments and then we'll look at uh, verse 24. The 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel that is found in these verses, 24 through 27, is probably the most controversial and difficult of all prophetic scriptures. I mean, we could debate that, but if there was a list, uh, Daniel uh, 9, these last verses are going to be on the very, very short top of the list. I would suggest they're probably uh, the most difficult uh, of prophetic scriptures. There are challenges in these verses in linguistics. There are a number of verbs that are obscure and difficult to interpret. The the chronology is difficult to establish. Are the periods consecutive? Are there various uh, numbers and years which are intended to be specific or are they general? There are theological issues, particularly in light of the drastically varying eschatological views. The views about these four verses are all over the place. The very fact that there are so many varying schools of thought and also so many varying views within each school of thought is just indicative to us of how difficult these verses really are. Now tonight what I want to do is look at verse 24 where I believe we can be absolutely certain about the meaning. The scriptures are going to give us a firm understanding of what this important prophecy is about. Now, next time, when we look at verses 25 through 27, where we can be confident about the general picture, uh, there are, and there are some views that we can dismiss, uh, but we're going to be entering ter- territory where there is enough uncertainty about the fine points and details that we can at best suggest what we think the best and most likely answers are. So when we get to 25 through 27 and deal with the details there, we're going to be able to say what we think the best uh, answers are, but we will not be able to be dogmatic about details. I would suggest here in verse 24 tonight, we can be very dogmatic about what we're going to say concerning this prophecy. Now let's look at verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed, about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Now, one of the things that is absolutely clear uh, is that there is something here at the very first words that we need to, to take a look at it. Uh, Let me point out to you that literally those opening words are this. Seventy-sevens. It's not the word weak. It is the word seven. And so that raises a number of questions. What does the seven refer to? Is it 70 weeks, which would be 490 days? That would be what this literally, if you took this to be weeks and you took this verse as it's translated here literally, that would be 490 days. Now, there are a number of reasons to believe that the 77s are in fact years, that this is not weeks here, 
but this is going to be sevens of years, which is going to equal 490 years. Now, let me see if I can give you some explanation of, about that. Now, the first reason that I would suggest this is, is a just on-the-surface reason for why we would take it to be this way. Our passage is getting ready to say, and let's look at the verse here. It says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, about Israel and Jerusalem. So if we just take a step back, just a step back from the scriptures a moment, and we just think about Daniel's time and what's going to happen in Israel and in Jerusalem in the future, what we see in sober history, what we know is, is that there will be that these two things are going to come to a decisive end in the year A.D. 70. Note also in verse 25, if you just look down to verse 25 for a moment, it says, From the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one is the period that this prophecy is dealing with. And so, who is the anointed one that is going to be coming? That is going to be our Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, is the Messiah. And when does Messiah come into the world? Messiah comes into the world around the year 5 B.C. And so if we just take a big step back and we think about these two things that this prophecy is about, Jerusalem and Israel and the Messiah, and we look at Daniel, Daniel is here speaking, uh, is here in this chapter in about 538 B.C., and so we know that from 538 B.C. to the end of, um, of the Jewish wars that are going to happen when Jerusalem is destroyed is uh, 610 years. And so if we just take a big step back and we look at history, we know that this period that's going to cover those two great themes must be somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 years. It just makes sense as we take a big step back from it. So it's not 490 days, a little more than a year, or 490 months, a little more than 40 years. Uh, on the face of things, we can see that it must be years. Now, there is a much stronger biblical reason for understanding this to be 490 years. And it centers around the reason that Israel is, in fact, in captivity in Babylon. So I want you to put your thinking hat on, clear your mind, and let me see if I can explain to you the connection to why they're in captivity and our understanding of this 490, this 77. Look at, back at the end of chapter 9, verse 2 again where it says, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. And so this reference to 70 years at the end of verse 2 is being picked up from Jeremiah the prophet. Now let's turn to Jeremiah 25. I want you to see just two short passages. Jeremiah 25. Now, immediately when we read in verse 2, that 70 years, and we know that this chapter's got 77, our little antenna should be 
So be shooting up to at least ask this question. Is there some kind of connection? Uh, are these two things somehow tied together? So in Jeremiah 25, verses 1 through 14, I'm not going to read this entire passage, but 1 through 14, this subject comes uh, to for, uh, forefront. You'll see at my ESV has a heading over to the chapter 25, 70 years of captivity. So look down at verses 11 and 12. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon in that land. And the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity declares the Lord making the land an everlasting waste. And so we're told here that the captivity is going to be 70 years. Turn over to chapter 29. Jeremiah 29. Verses 1 through 11 is going to be talking about what is relevant to us. But let's look, look again at verses 10 and 11. For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And so this is what Daniel is reading when he says in verse 2 of chapter 9 that he was reading from Jeremiah the prophet. And now Daniel is prompted to pray. Now why is Daniel so prompted to pray in this context? Well, Daniel was taken into captivity in 605 B.C. And here Daniel is in Daniel 9 now in 538 B.C., it is 67 or 68 years later, and Daniel is reading that 70 years is the period that we're going to be in captivity. And God has promised that he's going to, he's going to bring us back to the land after 70 years. And so Daniel begins to pray and to beseech God to, to do what he's promised to do. That's what his prayer in this chapter is about, is asking God to do what uh, he has promised to do for his people. Now, the next question is this. Is there any particular significance to the fact that this exile is 70 years? Uh, is it just a random number? Is it completely arbitrary? Is it just a mystery of God's providential decree that it will be forever unknown to us, or is there a specific reason for this period of 70 years? And of course the answer is, there is a specific scriptural reason for 70 years of captivity. Now let's turn to the book of Leviticus. And while you're turning there, let me ask you a question. If I say Sabbath, what immediately comes to your mind? Leviticus chapter 25. Did I say 25? If I say Sabbath, what comes to your mind? It, it, what comes to your mind is one day uh, out of seven days of the week, right? The Sabbath day. That would be 
uh, in our calendar. We, the last day of the week is, is in fact, Saturday. And so uh, we all know that that comes to mind immediately when we say Sabbath. Are you aware that not only is there a week of days, but that there is also a week of years? And that every Sabbath year, every seventh year is a Sabbath year. Are you, how many of you know that? Okay. A few of you. All right. Let's look here in Leviticus 25, verse 3 to 5. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in your fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. And so every seventh year uh, in the calendar is a Sabbath year. And so we not only have one day of our seven-day week, but we have one year of each seven years as well. Now, each week of Sabbath years also has a Sabbath. And so what I've got is I've got seven days and I have a Sabbath day. I have seven years and I have a Sabbath year. And then I have seven Sabbath years. That is seven of those. And then I have what? Who knows what that is? What is this next Sabbath? This bigger and bigger Sabbath. Who knows? Jubilee. Jubilee. So I have Jubilee year. So let me ask you a question as a side note. Do you think we think about Sabbath enough? When you look back at how God has structured the world and the calendar and life around the Sabbath principle, it raises a, a serious question every time I think about these things. Now, look down at Leviticus 25.8. You shall count seven weeks of years seven times seven years so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. You shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you, and you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, no grapes of the grapes from the, from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee, and that shall be holy to you. You shall eat the produce of the field. And so we have here every 50th year, 
is uh, another Sabbath year. Now, how important is the Jubilee year? What happens in Jubilee? It's a very, very important year in the calendar. Jewish slaves are free. When I say Jewish slaves, I'm talking about people who are Jews, who are brothers and sisters of their fellow countrymen, but are slaves, are freed in the year of Jubilee. Now, why would somebody be a slave to another Israelite? Why would one Israelite be a slave to another Israelite? Well, it is just like you having a mortgage on your house. They become in debt. They become indentured servants. And they serve until the 50th year. Another thing that happened was God gave the land to all the tribes of Israel. But what do you think happens in the course of time? Families, individual families that have land in their family, they lose it because of economic hardship. They have to sell it. And so one of the things that happens in Jubilee year is all the land reverts back to the family that it belongs to. And so a given family is never destitute from having land and resources and opportunity in Israel. Because every Jubilee year, every 50 years, the land will be returned to its original owners. And so when you bought and sold land in Israel, if you bought it in year 40, you'd pay a big price. If you bought it in year 30, you'd pay a little lesser price. If you bought it in year 20, you'd pay a smaller price. Because you were only buying it for from now to the year of Jubilee. But the families never were permanently separated from their land and from their inheritance. It was always restored in the year of Jubilee. And so those were the kind of things that happened in this very uh, important year. Debts were also forgiven in the year of Jubilee, and it served the same purpose that our bankruptcy laws serve. We have bankruptcy laws so that when people truly, truly, truly are financially destitute and can never recover, that there's a way for them to be able to start over. That's what bankruptcy laws are about. That's why we have them. Well, in Israel, this was the bankruptcy law because debts were forgiven in the year of Jubilee. And so those were the things that were so significant about this, uh, this super, as it was, Sabbath year. Now, I want you to turn with me to chapter 26. In verse 32, we'll get down to the heart of the matter about why this matters to Daniel, prophecy of Daniel. Leviticus 26 and 32. God speaking, and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle who settle in it shall be appalled at it. In other words, God's going to make the land so desolate that the people who conquer Israel and take over are going to be appalled at how horrible uh, the things have been left after uh, this, great, uh, this great destruction. Verse 33, And I will scatter you among the nations. In other words, I'm going to take you into exile. And I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation and your city shall be waste. And that's exactly what has happened in Daniel's day as he finds himself in Babylon in exile. 
Then, and notice this, this is the point. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest. And the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And so here's what God is saying. The day is going to come if you don't obey me, that I'm going to judge you by taking you into exile. One of the reasons that I'm going to take you into exile is you didn't observe this year. And you didn't observe this year. And the land, while you're in exile, is going to be able to have those lands, that, those years that it should have had. It's going to have an opportunity to have them. Now let's turn over to verse 42, just to continue on just for a second here. 42 and 43. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them, and enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity, because they spurned my rules, and their soul abhorred my statutes. And so Israel is going to be punished in exile, and the land is going to have its Sabbath days that it missed. Now turn with me to Second Chronicles. And now we're going to get right down to this issue about Daniel and his prophecy. Second Chronicles chapter 36. And verse 20. Speaking of this time of exile in Babylon, he says, He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbath, all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Okay, so now let's look at a timeline here. Here is Daniel. And he's in captivity. And this is 70 years. What we've just read in Second Chronicles is that in this period of time, there were 70 Sabbath years. That were not kept. And that's why there are 70 years in exile. Now, 70 Sabbath years happens to be what? It is to have 70 Sabbath years, I have to have how many years? I have to have 70 sevens of years. I have to have 400 and 90 years. And so the 77s that we're talking about looking into the future of Daniel has already been paralleled by 490 years 
prior to the exile in Daniel's time where Israel failed to keep the Sabbath years that God commanded them to keep. And so we have 490 years here, and now we're looking at in the future 490 years that are in the years to come in Israel's history. Now, note here in 2 Chronicles, while we're here, the next two verses, 22 and 23. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also to put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, Moreover, is a, more, whoever is among you of all of his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up, that is, let him return to Israel. So that is what is going to happen in the days that Daniel is looking forward to. Now, this period of time is actually about 1,100 years. This period of time here. And so during that 1,100 years, there were 490 years when they didn't keep Sabbath. This period is from about, uh, I think it starts about uh, 1406 B.C. when they enter Canaan. And the captivity is in 605 B.C. It is actually 1,100 years there. There are 70 years of captivity here. And now we're looking forward into the future, and we know that Daniel's, we know that all of this period is going to terminate in the year 73 AD. And this is exactly 610 years that this period is. And so out of these 610 years, 490 of those years are going to be significant to this prophecy. Now you'll note. Uh, in the following verses in uh, Daniel, that there are actually three periods that are identified. In verse 25, there are seven sevens. In verses 25 and 26, there are 62 sevens. And then in verse 27, there is one seven. And so Daniel stands at the midpoint of Jewish history. So I hope this makes sense. There are 70 sevens before Daniel. There are 77s after Daniel. And so we have our grasp around why this odd thing, 77s, it makes no sense. Well, it makes perfect sense in light of God's Word here. Now, I'm going to not finish what I was going to talk about tonight, but let me just mention one other thing before we stop. The next words in our verse are the words, after the word 77, are the words are decreed. Now, this word decreed means decided or determined. God has fixed this period of time to accomplish his redemptive purposes. In this period, this period, this 490 years, Daniel 77, in this period, the world is going to be shaken to its roots. What is going to happen on the world scene from Babylon to Persia to Greece? Greek Empire and Alexander the Great and then the Roman Empire which is just going to crush the world. It's going to shake this whole world to its roots. 
important things are going to come to an end in this period. Jerusalem and Old Testament Israel being one of those things that will come completely to an end in this period. Purposes that were set before this world was ever created, before this world was ever made, will come to pass in sober history in this period of time. This is a unique time in the history of the world. Promises that have been made the hope of God's people all the way back to Adam are going to come true in this period of time. The life, the person, the work that every moment of history was moving toward and from which every moment of history thereafter will flow from is going to appear in this period of time. And that is when our Lord Jesus Christ comes into this world. God's decrees don't get any bigger than this decree of 77s. Now two things are going to be accomplished. I'm just going to mention them. We'll talk about them a little bit, God willing, next time. And they are bringing to an end the people and the holy city. That's one of the great things that will happen. And then secondly, that list of things to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place, that is what our Lord Jesus Christ is going to do when he comes into this world in this period of time, Daniel's 77. So we'll talk about that, those six things in a little bit of detail next time, uh, Lord willing, and we'll stop here tonight. Any questions about this? Does this, I hope this makes sense of what is just something that seems so weird and completely arbitrary. I hope this puts it in a perspective so that it means something to us. This all happens because of God's commandments, the way he structures society, and whether or not God's people do, in fact, obey him uh, in this world that he has made. Let's close with a word of prayer if there are no questions.